this morning, and we are in, in John 6. And John, once again, is using the story of Jesus to reveal the purpose of him being here on this earth, the identity of the Son of God, the Messiah. This story, by the way, is that we read in John 6 is the same story that we, um, we would read in uh, Matthew um, 14. Matthew 14 is where we get the, the concepts of Peter also walking on water, where we get that story. Um, and Mark chapter 6, and Mark chapter 6 tells it even a little bit differently. So before we even get there, we wa- I want us to be, be really aware of something, because when we read this passage of Scripture today, we're not going to see Peter walking on water and turning his eyes from Jesus and falling in the water, and Jesus had to pull him out, okay? That's the story that every flannel graph board and every children's Sunday school lesson goes to, because there's a, a lot of really cool lessons to learn from it and how to believe in God, and how to believe in who Jesus is. However, John didn't do that, and so... I want us to understand that the, 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 the Gospels aren't telling different, a different story. Okay, when we read in the Gospels, oftentimes the same story is told differently. And it's just about perspective. It's, it's the candles. Debbie blew the candles out. I know. I know, it's very strong up here right now. Um, she should just left them alone. But um, Candy said they would smell something burning. Okay, that's what you smell. Um, it's a little funky sometimes early in the mornings in here, so we light those and then... She blew them out. So, um, so the Gospels each tell the story, except for Luke, and they tell them it's just a it's a perspective thing. So let's say that all us guys in here, because we needed a guys' day, kind of like this weekend. Hey, by the way, if you didn't come, you missed out. We had fun um, camping out out here and um, throwing stuff in fires and who knows, you know, all kinds of stuff. But um, if we all went to a um, a sporting event together. And then you had us all sit down in rooms and give our view of that sporting event. Our stories would read differently. I played defensive line in high school. I, I watch football games. I don't always watch where the ball's going. I oftentimes watch what the defense and offensive lines do against each other. I like it. I understand that aspect of the game a little better than I understand how a quarterback needs to change his arm angle to throw a ball. Because I was never quarterback. So I might write about... If we're watching the Colts, I don't even know who they have on the defensive line right now. Um, so who, who really cares? If I'm writing about the Bears, who matter, I'm going to write about how fast Willie Young is coming off the corner. And I like Willie Young because I have classes with him in NC State. So. <laughs> but uh, I, I would write about that, the things I saw in that perspective. Where maybe... Maybe, uh, maybe Steve is, maybe you're more like, maybe he's like this offensive guru and we just don't know it. Maybe he's like this crazy mind for crazy offensive plays and he needs to call the Bears um, and help him out. But he's watching how Cutler delivers the football to people. and He's watching how uh, the running backs take it and make moves to get open. And, and maybe, maybe uh, Anthony writes about uh, how good the, taco, or the, the hot dogs were. Maybe tacos, some places maybe. Um, maybe he wrote about that. See, but we would tell the same story. But the same exact moment, the same exact event. And I think most of you um, at this point, are, are, you, you're smart enough in the Bible to understand that, but we just want to make that clear every once in a while, that the, the gospel isn't changing. It's the same thing if, if we were to do like a, a family trip. If you go on a family trip to the beach, and I got stung by a jellyfish, Derek might not tell you about the jellyfish. But that's the first thing I'm going to tell you about. Stupid jellyfish got me on my leg, right? First thing I'm going to say. <laughs> So, so we understand that. So let's get into this passage. Let's look at it. Let's break it down. Let's understand that what the, what's being taught to us, besides a really cool story, by the way, is a really cool story. 
It's not one of the miracles or signs of Jesus because it wasn't done for display. It was done for the disciples, so it was a sign to them only because they were the ones who were true believers. So this is where we are. Let's read John 6, 16 through 21. Bless you. When, uh, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet, had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, remember what my favorite word in scripture is oftentimes is the word but. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. May Jesus stand forth for us today and we see him for who he is. So Jesus has just now multiplied Two tiny little fish and five loaves to feed thousands, right? He has fed thousands of people, 20,000, 25,000, 15,000, whatever it was. whole lot of people with very little food. Awesome thing he's done. The people were following him. He, 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 they're following him. They're staying on him. But he's, they're not following him for what he did. I mean, I'm sorry. They are following solely for what he did, not what he could do. They, they, they were looking at what, what magic happened, not at who he was. So he sent them away. He also sent them away because he knew they needed to rest. He sent the, the crowd away. He tells the disciples to get in a boat and head to Capernaum. He tells them to do this. And Mark tells us a little bit about this passage where nobody else talks about it. Mark says that he sent them on his way so that he could go to the mountainside to pray. And that's what he was doing. So he went away to the mountain to pray. And that's where we are in the scene. That's where that picture was, Father Let. If I'd have put it in here again, I'd have Brandon put it. But that's that picture. They're, they're on the ocean. No, they're not. I keep saying ocean. They're on the sea of Galilee. And they're, they're traveling. And, and it's about six or seven mile trip that they're taking. And they're out there on this water. And here's what happens. Verse 16. The evening came, he sent his disciples down to the sea. Got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. Six or seven miles here, and this is a very, we know the story, and so maybe we don't see this, but when you read this, the key words here are dark, and yet, there's a very, a very, a very somber idea here, a very mood of discouragement here, it's darkness of night, it's the absence of light, absence of security, absence of what we like to have around us, but really what this is, Jesus had not yet come, this is a powerful link between darkness it's an allegorical idea, a, 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 um, a, a wordplay on the darkness equaling the absence of Jesus. And, and we, this is important because we see this as Jesus teaches. When he begins to teach to the people, you hear him talk about this same idea. So this is our first really mention of it here in John. But this darkness isn't just the fact that it's nighttime. If it was, he wouldn't have had to couple it with the fact that Jesus wasn't there. So there's a couple here. It's just an idea it's to help us to picture these things. So the, the disciples get in this boat. I'm a, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes, um, last year one time by myself, I served this big Thanksgiving meal. And, uh, yeah, right, right. Okay. So we all, worked, we all worked pretty hard, even if we weren't constant working and, and stuff. There was, it, was, it was a lot of fun, but it was work. It was work. To do that Thanksgiving. The Christmas giveaway is a lot of fun, but it's work. Who's tired after those events? I'm tired after them. 
Every time. Maybe it's because my mind's racing on me and I've got to get, get that under control sometimes, but I'm tired. I've never fed with 11 of my buddies 20,000 people. <laughs> Hello. My guess is these dudes are tired. My guess is these guys are physically exhausted. Not only are they physically exhausted, my guess is they have, there, there may be a conversation here between them and Jesus, and Jesus said, they're not getting it. I need time to myself. Maybe they're depressed. Maybe they're frustrated. Maybe, maybe they are, are getting heavy-hearted over this stuff because, because they are now going to be put away from Jesus for a little while, which at this point was their sole sustenance. It was, he was everything to them. They'd, remember what they'd given up? Their jobs, their families, their homes, their security, their safety. They're traveling with this man that they believe is the Christ. They got it right. They're traveling with the Messiah, and they're following him, and now he's saying, go away, I need my own time. Now, part of this teaches me the beauty of, of the deity and humanity of Christ. I think it's beautiful that maybe he needed that for, maybe just for rest. Now, knowing the rest of the story, I know that, He's once again teaching them something, and we'll get to that. He's trying to prove to them who he really is again, yet again. Kind of like he has to do with us, because maybe our hearts aren't always bought in, right? Um, so, but here they are. They want Jesus with them, and he sends them away. So I'm wondering today if this describes you or me. I'm wondering if today you feel like the disciples did. Are you discouraged? Are you exhausted? Are you heavy-hearted? Are you in a dark season in life? Is life flustering around you in such a way that it it has you emotionally exhausted and spiritually dry, that you don't know what what the outcome needs to be, that you can't find out how to get to the other side to where there might be safety? You can't figure out why the storm is just raging around you? Do you feel that way today? We do in life at times. An old pastor that I knew, Junior Hill, used to say, in the Christian life, there's three stages. There's, there's in the midst of a storm. And if you're not in the midst of the storm, you're on your way over the edge to one or coming right up out of one. Because life is whirling around us and it's death and it's decay and it's sin. And we're living in that. So we're going to face things. Some of us are facing financial stress today. Some of us are facing stress because your child, children or child have made poor decisions. From the youngest child to grown adult children. Some of you are in here today because marriage is hard. And you're having frustrations there. Some of us are in here today frustrated because of personal sins of selfishness or greed or envy that are just eating away at us. I love this passage because, guys, here's the deal. Jesus has an answer for these feelings and these things that we're dealing with. Jesus has an answer. He has a solution. He has a way out. He has what we need to deal with that. And, guys, I'm going to ask you now. I'm asking you. I don't say these kind of things very often because I don't think I'm the best preacher on earth for sure. I don't think I'm the smartest guy in the room most of the time. But I'm going to ask you really wholeheartedly to listen today. Because I think this passage, if we gloss over it about Jesus walking on the water, we're missing it. Kids, teenagers, listen. If you can learn this today... And when you're 34, 35, or your parents' age, or your grandparents' age, or our wise and beautiful um, folks in here today, you might not have to face the issues that they do mentally and that we do mentally, where we, where we don't believe in what you have, what God has for us, where we let stress and stuff defeat us, where we fear what people are thinking about us. If you guys can learn, listen, listen, I want to talk to just this right here. Everybody right here. Isaac, look at me. Hannah, Derek, Jalea. 
if you can learn that Jesus has an answer for all those things and you can learn that today, it will change the rest of your life. I promise. I promise. But at 35 or 65, guess what? It still can change our lives. It's just going to be a little harder because we've got bad habits set in our mind. And I ain't talking about biting fingernails. I'm talking about bad things that we put in ourselves. So let's see just how Jesus handles such people. Let's see how he handles this situation and these people. So let's just assume for a moment, we don't know how far they are out on the water. Maybe they're right dead in the center. Maybe they've made it to the middle. And it says the sea in verse 18, the sea became rough. The Greek actually means the sea became awake and was provoked with anger. I don't want that sea. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Essentially, because of the the geographic area that still happens today over there, it's something we've studied and we understand, little mini hurricanes hit the Sea of Galilee regularly. So what it is, is the Sea of Galilee is actually 600 feet below sea level. And the the northerly cool air and the southerly hot air, they hit. And they, they form these storms real fast on the sea. And they come rushing in and they, they clash and the storms become violent. And we know that. We see it happening today. This is what Jesus has allowed for these men to, to go into. And the disciples, they've been in storms like this. What were they? Most of them were fishermen or several of them were fishermen. You think they'd seen a storm? I bet they've seen a storm. Matter of fact, in the other Gospels, there's another storm story. You guys know the other storm story? Jesus is taking a nap in the boat. He's with them this time, and they still don't know to go get him at first. And he says, that's enough. Be still. Sit still, ocean. See? I say ocean all the time. Sit still. They've seen this already. So this, this storm must have been new. I mean, this must have been bigger, badder, worse than they've ever seen. These were expert fishermen who became afraid. But why? Why were they afraid? Maybe the storm was different. Or maybe it's because they weren't with Jesus. Maybe it's because they weren't walking closely with... Jesus wasn't physically with them. It sounds like our lives. We are always facing something. But I'm going to tell you, I can tell you from experience... When my life is lining up with, with what I claim and I'm walking with Christ and I'm striving to live in that, my storms don't ever seem as bad. I faced the worst storm my whole life earlier this year. And I was afraid and I was frustrated and I was scared. And yet I knew where I was with my walk. And it worked out faster than it should have, than anybody expected it to. It's amazing the way God works like that. But these guys, they didn't have Jesus with them. They're already exhausted. They're already tired. And here they are in this sea, in this storm. And it's raging. And it's rocking their ship. It's rocking their ship to the point where we see in verse 19, they've had to drop sail. They've begun to row. If you've ever seen a commercial fishing boat now, I sure wouldn't want to row one. But I've seen models of old Viking ships with the oars that came out the side. I've seen models of old old fishing ships that would have six or eight oars on either side. There's only 12 of these guys. 
They're trying to row this big fishing boat, which is more than likely what they were still on because it's what they would have had available to them. And here they are. And verse four, 19 says, Then they had rowed, th- when they had rowed, about three or four miles. Whew. I love to watch rowing in the Olympics because I'm just amazed at the, how they synchronize their strokes and how everybody looks like they're doing the exact same thing at the exact same speed, but one ship, one boat is gone and the other dude's like way back here and I'm like, what are they doing different? I don't know what they're doing different. I just like to watch it and try to figure it out and I never have and probably never will. But I know that I have rowed a canoe and I've rowed, rowed in, a, in, in rapids and I know when you go about mm, half a mile, your shoulders start to burn and your triceps are on fire and you're frustrated because the guy over there is not rowing as fast so you're going in a circle. <laughs> so three or four miles, these guys have rowed. They're already tired. They're already afraid. They're already frustrated. And they look up and they see Jesus walking on the sea coming near the boat. And they were frightened. One of the other, one of the other passages tells us that they were frightened because they thought it was a ghost. But no, it was just Jesus enjoying what he had created. <laughs> Meandering about on the water. Hmm, look at this lovely thing I've made. You know, I don't know what he's doing, but I know ultimately what he's doing. Ultimately, he's teaching us about himself. But he walks up to the boat. He walks up to this boat. And, and, and Matthew tells us that it's been about a 12-hour trap that they've been out here. Dark, hectic, scary, and here comes Jesus. You see what he did there? Do you guys really see what he did? Who saw that he walked on water? We see that. Do you see what he really did? Guys, what he really did? What Jesus really did when you come to know him and when you need him? He doesn't stand in a spot and say, come find me. It's not hide and go seek with Jesus. He meets us where we are. He comes to stand beside us he comes to be, here's a good word for you kiddos to learn. Maybe Ellie and Anthony might be old enough to know it. But a buttress for us. He becomes a support system that holds us up. He comes to meet us where we are at. He walks out on water, a miraculous event. Who cares? He's Jesus. We've already established that he created everything. In John 1, the very first thing John taught us. Who cares that he walked on water? He went to where the disciples needed him. At the moment they needed him, no matter what they were doing. My guess is some of them were fishermen. You ever met a sailor? Um, Some of them was cussing down there. (laughs) I'm telling you right now. (laughs) One of them was like, my arms ain't doing it. You know, like in Pac-Man when the little symbols used to come across his head. That's what they were doing down there. I guarantee you somebody's down there mad. Judas is back there like, man, I wrote enough. He has his hands in his pocket. Or actually, knowing him, he might be over there praying to some other gods. <laughs> Peter's screaming at everybody to get going. What are y'all doing? He's drill sergeant, it, you know. Philip's over there. Well, do we have the money to buy a new boat if we survive? You know, I don't know, but but I know what I know what they're not doing. They're not focusing on who Jesus is. They're not viewing this as okay, God, you have this. They, at this point. They, just, they fed from the hands of Jesus all these people. I would have liked to have think that they would say, let's take a minute to pray about this. Let's ask Jesus to help us out. He's, he's prayed in front of us, so we know that he prays to the Father. Maybe we can try that. No! 
As a matter of fact, none of the accounts of this story tell us anything like that. <laughs> no. They work the tail off and they're afraid. And even when they're in that moment, even when they're facing life and handling it incorrectly and they're doing the things they're doing, Jesus comes to where they are. He steps right into their midst and is where they need him to be. And nobody else. Nothing else was there. There was no other way to get out of it. He came to them. Guys, I'm telling you what now, when, you, when, we, are, when we notice this, when we become aware of this, for me it is a major encouragement. I hope it is for you. Because when I'm feeling abandoned or alone or weary or troubled or discouraged or angry or frustrated or afraid, Jesus meets me where I am. He's aware of what we need. He's aware and he wants to help us. Nothing, nothing is beyond his understanding. We need to notice that Jesus is walking around on the very thing that is troubling the disciples. Most of our troubles are this world swirling around us. Some of it's self-inflicted, some of it's not. But it's all produced in sin and Jesus came and he walked right around in this world. He dealt with it sinlessly, fearlessly because he was God and he gave us the example of how to do it. In, in, in that power, he meets us where we are when we need him and when, when we need to find him. In his, in his power, he has, he has, he has uh, made it a way for us to not live in those things. And that's what he was telling the disciples. He said, hey, disciples, yeah, the waves are rocking you. Remember that passage I read out of Psalm where I said it's not really about water? Jesus, he could have calmed the sea from the shore. He could have said, all right, I'll let them be afraid for a little bit. I'm done. Let it stop it. And when they get over, I'll tell them I did it. Would have been just as powerful to them in the moment. Wouldn't have taught us about Jesus and our needs. Wouldn't have shown us how Jesus is in, in our needs too. It wouldn't have shown us how he comes to us. It wouldn't have shown us that he is so not limited by anything. It's my valley girl. It's so not limited, right? We have personal limitations and it's part of our fear, but Jesus is not. Nor did Jesus go to them and say, hey, Peter, shut up and stop yelling at everybody. Judas, stop praying to Baal. I don't know if these things really happen, guys. Remember? Okay, we're joking. He didn't go say, hey, Philip, don't worry about the boat. I got it. He walked up to the boat and he said, it is I. Don't be afraid. I titled today, It is I. It is I. I see that passage right there. I see that one verse and I go, I remember this story about this guy in the wilderness. He was raised as royalty and found out he wasn't. He murdered a citizen of the Egyptian government, a worker for the Egyptian government. He ran off and hid in the wilderness. And one day, he saw a bush on fire that was not consumed by fire. And he's like, what is this? And he says, I am. <laughs> Whoa. He knew who it was. And that's what Jesus said here. He says, I am. I'm Jehovah. I'm here. Don't be afraid. I am the God of all gods. I am the creator of all things. I am here. I came to you. It is I. Stop being afraid. 
Mark in his passage adds, it is I, do not be afraid, be of good cheer. Which I hear be of good cheer and then I go, I remember James says, count it joy when I face trials of many kinds. What? What? Are you sure? It's amazing to know that Jesus came out he identified himself as his I and all the fears were banished. Why doesn't that work for us? Because only our fears can be banished. Only our frustrations can be banished. Only our hope can be built. Only our encouragement can be relifted. Only our renewal can happen. Only our, our trust in him can happen if we truly allow it in the faith, having our hearts occupied by him instead of the things that are ugly in our lives. See, we let it in. We let it occupy us. Instead of allowing faith in him to completely occupy us. We look around and we get disheartened. We look within and we get discouraged. But we look to him and he says, It is I, all fear is vanished. All disheartenment is vanquished. Jesus didn't say it's almost over. He didn't say I'm going to stop the storm as soon as you trust me better. He didn't say, well, if your faith was a little little bit stronger, I'd give you this. He didn't say, hey guys, the storm's going to die down. It's just another storm. He said, it is I. Boom. Done. It is I. Don't be afraid. I love this idea right here, and it may be on the screen already. Yeah. Jesus never addressed the storm. He never said, wind, stop. He never said, sea, calm down. He never said, hey, uh, uh, you know, wave, don't hit this boat so hard. He never said, hey, sunshine right on this, or moon, give us a little better reflection. He didn't say anything like that. He didn't speak to the sea. Could have. Could have. But he didn't. He solely addressed one thing. His presence in the moment. He addressed that he was there. Regardless of situation or setting, when Jesus is with you and he says, I'm here, guess what? It's all good. It can be scary and hard and frustrating and doubtful. If we live in the faith that Jesus is here, it's all good. There's no need and no moments for fear and anxiety. Perfect love offered through God, through Jesus, casts out this fear. When he is present with us, these other things subside. Does that mean our human nature will never be afraid again? No. Does that never mean we'll never get stressed again? No. Does it, never, does it mean that we'll never be in a storm again? No. It means that if we, in that moment, remind us, and we look to Christ and we go, he is here, those things become mute points. Because he is here. He said, it's I. I am here. I am perfect love. I am perfect security. I am perfection for you. I want to read several passages of scripture that kind of tie this in. I want you to understand it. First one comes out of 1 John chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his holy son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 18 and 19 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. He's paid this punishment. He's in control. Nothing is more powerful. And he is presently protecting us. Does that mean life gets easy all the time? No. Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is my light, my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 28, 8, The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Whew. Man. Isaiah 41, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, of whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with the righteous right hand. What did he ask the, Jew, the Israelites to do here? Nothing besides turn to him in faith. The same thing that he tells us in that first passage I read out of 1 John. It didn't have anything to do with you and me. Our little tiny piece we had to do was turn to him and believe. It's, a little, it's action. It's, we got to do it. But he said, I just want to read this last part of this one before I read the next verses. I am with you, fear not. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold my righteousness right, my, with my righteous right hand. Hello, folks. We've got to live to understand that we are not building ourselves. We are not living and holding ourselves up. It's solely Christ's work. And he's doing it in us. He's doing it for us. He's doing it with us. He's doing it to us and through us. I'm telling you, guys, I'm telling you, if you can understand this, it will change our outlook and our perspective for the rest of our lives. Matthew 28, 20 says, I am with you always. Now, that's part of the Great Commission. Christ's followers have a constant promise of the presence of God. Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also... Um, sorry, I lost my spot. How will he also, not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? If you don't know what the word interceding means, it means that Jesus prayerfully takes our name to the throne of God. He prays for us. Hello! We think our prayer for somebody is big. He intercedes for us. He goes to the Father and says, Nope, you don't see Brandon, you see me. Whew! That make you want to dance. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Yes, that's what happens. Those things separate us from the love of God because we pull ourselves back. The world around us, and our country, and, and the world, not just our country, says, we don't want God in court. We don't want it in schools. We don't even want it in churches anymore. We sure as heck don't want it in the workplace. Separation, don't talk to me about it. What do you never talk about? Never talk about politics and religion. Don't want Jesus until Katrina hits. Oh, where was God? 
Until somebody, something happens in our lives and we're like walking around dancing on, on a cloud nine. Oh, my life is good. I'm doing whatever I want. And all of a sudden something hits us and knocks us off there. God, where were you? Why did you let that happen? Guess who is in the wrong? Not God. Now, I'm not telling you that God hit us with that, that Katrina hit because of sin or natural disaster. That's, there is a control thing there. God is sovereign. He allowed it. He controlled it. Whatever that is, it is. I can't explain that. What I'm trying to point out is we want to push God out of everything until we want him. We ought to be pushing ourselves out of everything until God takes over it. That's what he's trying to teach us. He says, no, in all these things, this is verse 38 and 39 from Romans 8. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am not sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hello. He's the problem solver. He's better than Fix-It Felix. If you don't know what that is, it's a great little movie, kids movie, but um, Felix goes around and fixes everybody's stuff. He's a little handyman. Um, he's, he's, he's better than this. We love fix-it feelings, right? Jesus is better than that. He's bigger. He has more resources. He, he doesn't need any special tools. He is God, the creator, and he is for us, and nothing can separate it from us, so we are more than conquerors. When you are the one who's responsible for your identity, your worth, your outcome, or your value, then you control it. When it rests on our shoulders, we live in fear and anxiety and frustration and pain and stress. We have to keep it. We have to hold it. We have to worry about it. We have to fix it. We have to try to fight it. We have to put the matter into the boxes and try to make our situation work the way we want it to. But when we say that we are adopted by God, when we say that we are a Christ follower and we know that and we live in that, it's Christ is the one whose identity we get. He's the one who gives us our worth. I don't have to worry about it in my in my uh, name brand clothes or in my cool car or in my things that I have or in my trophy wife or my trophy husband. or I ho- I'll never have a trophy husband, but um, <laughs> y'all know what I'm saying. My wife has one. Um, <laughs> no, we don't have to live in those things. And we, when we experience the supernatural soul's rest within, within Christ for who he is and who we are in him, then we know that we're loved and we're cherished and we live in that, that we are adopted into a family to be heirs. He sent his spirit to be with us to give us a foretaste of what glory is going to be. But we don't live with that spirit abiding through us all the time. So we go, my gosh, this Christian life is really hard. There's hard things, there's hard parts. But man, if we live in that, we're going to feel what it is to be momentarily in glory and what it's going to be like to live in the strength and the power of Christ and Christ's likeness. And, and we'll, learn, we'll become more like that and we'll be more God-imitating instead of being imitated by, intimidated by God. We're going to be by God-imitators. We're going to intimidate the devil out of our heads. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to get this under control. Jesus was near him. Verse 21 says this. 
Then they were glad to take him into the boat. This tells us something about human nature. It's just like I was just screaming about a second ago. Push him away, push him away, be fearful, be fearful. Oh, you're here to fix it? Okay, I'll take you in. The beautiful thing about Christ is he's always going to allow us. He's always going to be there to take us back. He's always going to be there to have it, have us. But we shouldn't ever get to a point where we have to ask him to come back into the boat. The boat of our heart and our soul should always be so focused on him that the fears and the frustrations, yeah, they're going to get us momentarily. But we're going to turn our head and we're going to go, oh, yeah, my, my, the eyes of my heart are on you. And immediately the boat was at the land in which they were going. Christ did not force himself upon them. He does not force himself upon us. It is the welcome of our hearts that he desires. We must not understand this to mean that when Christ has manifested himself to us, that all of our winds will cease. They won't blow any longer, that our troubled situations will no longer befriend us. Far from it. It means that our heart will have found a haven of rest. Our fears can be quieted and we should be occupied not with the storm, but with the master of the storm. Following Christ brings us into storms. I've been discussing with some of the folks here, a couple of people and, and some pastor friends of mine about how to handle this concept that what do you do with, with the marriage laws as a pastor? When there's one pastor who's already being intimidated and told he's got to do it in another state. He's got to do homosexual unions and marriages. What do you do with that? Why is it even a brother? Because I'm trying to stand on Scripture. That's why it's hard. But I'm not going to sweat it. I'm not going to worry about it. We're going to face things like, I was told I was completely ignorant this week because I don't believe in evolution. I'm completely ignorant about a lot of things. One thing I'm not is creation. God said he spoke and it happened. It happened that way. That's how I believe it. Is it hard to believe it? Yeah, sometimes it is. For me, it's a lot easier to believe that than that we all came from, you know, chimps. Well, some of y'all did. Um, Sometimes I think I might have. But standing on Scripture, living in this place where we know Christ is is our source and our comfort and our strength and the buttress of our life, doesn't mean things are going to be easy forever. It doesn't mean that, gosh, when you're in middle school and high school and college, it doesn't mean that people are never going to make fun of you for saying you believe in Christ. When you're in your workplace and you're the only person who doesn't tell dirty jokes or curse, people don't think different of you. Hopefully it's a different that leads them to Christ, and if not, you still get the honor of knowing you glorified God and what you did. It doesn't mean that it stops and becomes simple. But there's an inevitable promise that's sitting there for us. And that promise is that Christ cares. He's always there. And he's right where we need him to be. He meets us where we are. 
Are you going through a storm now? If you are, He sees it. He knows it. Believe that and rest in it. Don't rest in the storm. Rest in the one who you know has it, has that storm. Even if it's one you can't control. Even if it's one you'd never be able to change. And maybe the outcome is not one you want. Rest in the Christ who has that storm. Who is dancing on top of the fear that is causing it. Rejoice that help is on the way. The disciples were rowing and rowing and rowing three, four miles out to the sea. Not ever knowing that help was on the way. But he was there way before they saw him. He was watching, he knew. If that was true for those disciples whose faith was built on a visual sight and touch of Jesus. And Scripture clearly says that those who believe now have their faith is way greater because they, they have faith without seeing. If we live in that faith, how much more do we have the ability to believe that in the darkness that he's there? Are you, are you disheartened? Are you filled with darkness? Do you wonder a way out? Keep expecting him. Keep expecting him to do it and, and living faithfully to the promises that he can. And be open to the moving of the hand of God in your life because sometimes his movement is revealing our own sin and arrogance and working on us first. Sometimes it's calm in the sea. Sometimes it's like verse 21 where he stepped in the boat and immediately they were at shore. Doesn't make sense to me. But it did to him. It's what he wanted to do. So is your life filled with uncertainty regarding your job or your career, your spouse, your children, your school? Why not invite Jesus into your boat and stop trying to manhandle it and control it and keep the oars yourself? Are you insecure about something today? Why not invite Jesus into that boat? Are you struggling with something? Are you have conflict with others? Why not invite Jesus into that boat? Ultimately, you have to invite Jesus into your, the boat of your heart, of the calling of relationship to him. Initially, we have to be called by the Holy Spirit to come to know Christ because we're, we're defiled, we're, we're sinful, detestable creatures because of sin. We don't go seeking God. Graciously, he comes seeking us. And at that point, we, we repent of our sin. and That's the first boat. But then life's boats are all around us. If it wasn't a waste of water, I'd have filled the baptistry and put a bunch of little boats in there. It's a waste of water and I'm a cheapskate. I could have done it with a bucket on the ground. But we have boats all around us and they're stirring around us. And some of them are crashing. Some of them cause anxiety and fear and frustration. And the Jesus of the cross is the Jesus of the sea and he's the Jesus of those boats because he's the Jesus of our life. Would you let him come into it? Not just, not just for the sake of salvation. That's first. That's the most necessary portion. But for the sake of his lordship and our righteous living in him.